Tracks like this are all about proving who can come in first. The fastest and the best leads the way. And as one great theologian said, if you come in second, you just the first loser, right? In the first century culture of Jesus' day, a man's success in the race of life was defined by three things, owning a lot of wealth and land, having a wife and having sons. Jesus valued those things as well, but for radical different reasons, as we see in Matthew's chapter 19. First of all, when it comes to marriage, the Pharisees seem to have adopted a posture that since she's just here to provide heirs for me, if I decide I don't like her, I can get rid of her. After all, Moses allowed for divorce in the Old Testament law. But Jesus says, have you not read that who, who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Second, when it comes to children, again, they wanted owls, but it seems they didn't always want the children to actually hang around. But look at what Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Finally, when it comes to wealth, they thought it showed God's favor to all land. After all, this was Israel, the promised land given to the Jews. But when a wealthy young leader comes to Jesus seeking the secret of God's life, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. But the followers of Jesus didn't quite get it yet. They still see the way of Jesus as something you give things up for, rather than something you actually gain from. So Peter asked him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the generation when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children of lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Maybe that's what's wrong with our whole approach to marriage, family, and money. We want to be first, but in the kingdom Jesus is proclaiming is the one who is trying to come in first without any concern for others who is truly in danger of losing out. I want to say thank you to Coach Dan, who has read for us uh, before, uh, along with many others. And, uh, I and that was shot at Carver, right? And that's where you went and you coached. That's correct. Give, give Coach Dan a big hand. Thank you so much for that.
It's wonderful. I also want to say hello to all of you who are watching online and on television. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And again, if you're a guest with us, either in the room or online, we're so thankful that you are here. For those of you who are in the room, would you please join me in welcoming our online television audience. If you're a guest with us, one of the things we like to do every week is pray for another local church. And this morning, we're going to be praying for Free Will Missionary Baptist Church, their pastor, Quentin Bird. I got to meet Pastor Bird uh, not too long ago, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And so as we pray for ourselves this morning, let's lift them up as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the many ways that you have already blessed us in this service and Lord, as we come this morning, we do, we lift up Free Will Missionary Baptist Church. We pray that you would be with each and every member. We pray that you would bless their church as they are moving forward uh, in these difficult days. We pray that you would be with Pastor Bird. Would you watch over him and his family and protect him and inspire his mind and the leadership there that they may continue to grow the kingdom. And Lord, now by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to each and every one of us? Come, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. I received this text uh, a couple of years ago, actually, from uh, a guy who's almost 50 years old. He said this, yo, Pastor Chris. <laughs> That's a great way to start a text. He says, there are a few things that drive my life. They're not bad things, but they control me so much. I do not know why these things have so much power over me. Is there a way that I can break the power of the things in my life that control me? Again, they're not necessarily bad, but can you have too much of a good thing in life? I think we've all asked uh, a question either like that or similar to that. And the Bible actually gives us an answer to those kind of questions. And the answer to those kind of questions is, are there things in our life that can control us? Can you have too much of a good thing? The biblical answer for that is found in this word of idol or idolatry. Idol or idolatry. Anything in life can become an idol. Absolutely anything. A lot of times when we think about idols, we think that idols are bad things, or we think of golden calves like in Israel's story. But Technically, anything in life can become an idol. When we make good things, yes, they are good, but we make them ultimate things in life, it can be an idol for us. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said that idolatry is worshiping anything other than God or worshiping God for anything less than who he is. It was John Calvin who said that our hearts are idol factories. We create idols for ourselves, these things that we look up to, these things that we put in that place of preeminence in our life. And in our text today in Matthew 19, Jesus actually, through a few conversations, deals with three big idols that we all face, three major idols in our life. In, in Matthew 19, there are three kind of different scenes that we see here. And so let's look at the first one. In Matthew 19, verse 1, uh, the text opens up and it says, When Je Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Verse 2 says, Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Then in verse 3, we, we see this line. It says, Some Pharisees came to test him. 
some Pharisees came to test him. And right here we see the motivation behind this conversation. Okay? They are coming to Jesus to test him. These are trick questions with potential traps. And whenever someone's asking you a trick question, there's really a question behind the question, but they're too scared to ask the real question. So some Pharisees came to him to trick him, to trap him, to test him. And here was their first question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Notice they're using legal language here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus gives a straightforward answer quoting Scripture and says, Haven't you read, meaning read in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, right here, Jesus communicates five truths. I'm going to give them to you quickly. First one is this. Jesus identifies God as the creator. He calls God the creator of all things. Number two, he affirms that male and female are both created in God's image, meaning your biology is sacred because it's given to you by God. Number three, he affirms the process of leaving your family, your mother and father, and starting a new family, the normative process. You leave them, you start one. Number four, Jesus affirms the intimate relationship that a husband and wife have. The two become one flesh. And then number five, Jesus affirms the sacred union of marriage. This is something that God has done. Let no one separate it. The bottom line here, though, what Jesus is communicating is that marriage is a holy endeavor before God and no one should break up what God has put together. Meaning, that phrase, let no one separate, Jesus says, is do not step into a marriage and then break up that marriage. Do not step from the outside in and break up a marriage. Is that clear? This, did not, um, this was not a good enough answer for the Pharisees. So, they ask a second question, verse 7. Why then... They ask, did Moses command? Notice the word command. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus responds, verse 8, and says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Notice that. They're asking the question, why did Moses give us this commandment? Because it, it has to be legal, it has to be right under the law before God, right? So Moses commanded this, and Jesus says, nope, Moses permitted this. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. This was a problem with you, he said. This is not an issue with the law. But it was not this way from the beginning. This is not the original design, God, uh, Jesus says. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, or to marry another woman, commits adultery. Now right here, Jesus again communicates five truths. Number one, Jesus distinguishes between what is prescribed and what is permitted. Those are two completely different things. What is prescribed speaks to God's perfect will, those things that God ultimately takes pleasure in. What is permitted are the, speaks to God's permissive will, those things that God allows by his grace and his mercy, but they are different. Again, the Pharisees are looking for a command. Jesus says, no, that is permitted. Number two, 
God's perfect will, Jesus communicates, from the beginning is for marriage to last for a lifetime. This was the original design. Number three, God's permissive will is that divorce can happen if your spouse is unfaithful. Your spouse is unfaithful to you, you were released from the covenant. Number four, Jesus does not say that all divorce is a sin. Some of you have been told that. That is not true. Number five, Jesus does not say that all remarriage is a sin. Some of you have been told that. That is not true. The big idea here is that God does not permit you to leave your spouse just because you want to marry another one. Does that make sense? He calls that adultery. When you leave your spouse just to go marry another person. And this is important because your marriage reflects the relationship that God has with his people on the earth. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that also in the New Testament as those parallels are drawn. Their questions, though, the Pharisees' questions, reveal what's going on behind the scenes. They reveal their idols, if you will. What, what was rampant in the first century was, I want the power to do what I want to do. I want the freedom here. And that is the idol that's taking place. The idol is the idol of freedom, relational freedom in relationships. Freedom in relationships. And we even, we, I mean, we know, I mean, people say, this marriage boxes me, and we use different language for that. I want another marriage. And Jesus is saying, that is not the original design. And the idol that is at play here is the idol of freedom. That false sense of freedom that I do what I want to whenever I want to, with whomever I want to. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's designed by the Creator. Now, the disciples are overhearing this. And so they're, they're listening, and they decide to chime in with a statement. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, Well, Jesus, if, if this situation, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's just better not to marry. Now, no, this is a statement here. And what they're saying is, if Jesus, if we're going to get caught in this cycle of I'm married to one, but I want to be married to another one, you know, it's just better not to do the whole thing. Right? Right. And Jesus here, he, he, he gives some very hard teaching. He says in verse 11, it says, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, meaning this is about to be hard, but only those to whom it has been given. Verse 12, he says, there are eunuchs who have been born that way. Now, a eunuch is a person who does not or cannot engage in sexual activity. He says, there are eunuchs, non-sexual beings, there are eunuchs who were born that way. And that's true. There are people who are born and they are unable to do that. The second thing he says, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Very common practice uh, in many different cultures throughout history, especially if you were a king or you were a prince or something like that, and you had servants or slaves who worked for you. If you were male many times, they would be made eunuchs so they could not engage in sexual activity with the king's wife or wives or concubines. Common practice. And Jesus says, yes, there are some who are made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's what we call a vow of celibacy. And Jesus says, yes, there are some who do that as well. And he ends and says, the one who can accept this should accept it. In the context of this conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees, where they're really pushing Jesus on this idea of relational freedom. If I don't like the marriage I'm in, I want another one. I can just move from this one to that one under the law. What Jesus drives at here is that sex is not the most important thing in the world. 
It is good. It is created by God. It is from God. It is sacred in that sense. But it is not the most important thing. And Jesus is revealing what drives the question that the Pharisees are actually asking. They're idle of this relational freedom. Again, to be able to do whatever they want to with whomever they want to and there be no consequences as long as they can find loopholes in the law. And you know that this is an idol when there are uncontrolled urges that drive your decisions or there's unfulfilled urges that drive you to depression. And Jesus says the issue here is that they want freedom to move from relationship to relationship without any consequences. And he says that's not the way it is designed. That was the first idol. The second idol is the idol of privilege. And status. We get this conversation. It's, it's as if the, the scene shifts in verse 13, and it says, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. People are bringing their kids to Jesus. Would you please bless my child? But the disciples rebuke them. And we're sitting here going, Why are they doing that? Why are they rebuking the kids? Verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then in verse 15 it says, When he had placed his hands on them and blessed them, they went on from there. So the first scene, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees in this idol of relational freedom. The second scene here, Jesus is dealing with the idol of privilege or status. The disciples actually uh, block the kids from coming to see Jesus, if you will. Uh, this was very common in the first century because Children in particular, but also women and slaves, were considered to have no status in society. You know how we think of low, lower class, middle class, upper class. There, there's, you either have class or you don't. You either have status or you don't. You have privilege that comes with that status or you don't in the first century. And children had no status. So it was a very normal thing for them to say, no kids, you cannot come see Jesus. Don't approach him this person whose status in society is growing as he is doing his ministry. Now, we do the same thing in our life. and I mean, everyday life, we have the same kind of status and privilege at play in many different ways. Just to prove the point, uh, there's probably not many people in this room or watching online that can just, if you want to, go have a conversation with the president. I mean, most of us can't just say, hey, Joe, I'd like to talk to you. We don't have the status and therefore the privilege to have that kind of conversation. And this plays out in many different ways. And this is the one we see playing out here. But what Jesus does is Jesus inverts. He flips this view of privilege upside down in this moment. He flips it upside down. He, said, he actually says, those who have no status in society in the kingdom, they are prioritized. They have the priority. And those who have much status in society, they're not prioritized. They have a responsibility. What did Jesus say to his disciples whenever the kids were trying to come? He said, do not hinder them. Do not hinder them. Let them come to me. Jesus making that one statement in the first century is a radical statement. He is inverting what it means to be privileged here. Jesus is saying in the kingdom, the ones with status, the ones with privilege, are actually the least of these. That's why in the church, things like kids' ministry, things like student ministry, things like ministry with the poor. We just commissioned our ministry uh, with the poor team this uh, past uh, Tuesday night uh, over in the East Sanctuary. This is why things like missions, both locally and abroad, these things matter. 
Because our commission as the church is to go to the least, go to the last, go to the lost, go to the weak, go to the vulnerable. Because in the kingdom, their status, their privilege is the priority. Jesus puts them in that category. So many times in life, we are consumed by building our status and the privilege that comes with it and building ourselves and our lives and our careers around gaining more and more. And Jesus says, that's not how it is in the kingdom. So the first idol is this idol of relational freedom. The second idol is the idol of status and privilege. The third idol that Jesus deals with here is the idol of security and comfort. This is where we get the rich young ruler story, starting in verse 16. Again, the scene shifts, and Jesus has this conversation. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 17, Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? In the first century world, you would never use the word good unless you were talking about God. You know, we throw the word good around a lot. Oh, they're a good person. That was a good thing. You know, we had a good time. You wouldn't use that word in the first century unless you were referring to God. And so that's why Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus said, you shall not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right there, Jesus throws out these external commands to him. You see that? In verse 20, uh, the young man said, oh, I've kept all these, every one of them. I'm doing good. What do I still lack? You know, if you, if you are into command keeping and you think you build your self-worth and your, your position before God off keeping commands, it's always going to leave you lacking. And that's what this man is experiencing. He said, I'm lacking something. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, Go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me, Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm offering you treasure in heaven. If you'll do that and then come follow me. And then in verse 22 it says, When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The idol here is the security, is the comfort that comes from wealth, possessions, and money. Money is not a bad thing in and of itself. It is a tool. That's all that it is. It is not in and of itself bad. It's that drive that that money provides me security and comfort in life. That's when it becomes an idol, when we worship the thing itself, not the God of the thing itself. This man, what he does on this day is he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I hear your offer about treasure in heaven. I, I hear it. I, I, I hear what I have to do. But in this moment, this man says, I believe that my wealth gives me more than what I believe you can give me. So I won't do it. I will not follow you. The idol was the security and comfort that comes from having the wealth. So there are three idols here. We've all dealt with these in some way in our own life. 
this idol of freedom in relationships, this idol of privilege and status in life, and this idol of security and comfort that we all seek after and drive for. Jesus ends this teaching, though, by saying, he said, you need to know that there are people who, they look like they're first in life, they look like they're winning, but they're really last. And the last, those who look like they're coming in last, well, they're actually going to be first in life. And one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that if you're going to be first, if you're really going to win in the race of life and in the kingdom of heaven, you have to kill your idols. You have to deal with them. And here's the thing. Every person sitting in this room, every person who has ever sat in this room, every person who will ever sit in this room, any, every person who's watching online or will ever watch on television or online, every one of us have to deal with our own idols. Every one of us. Idolatry is the greatest sin in all of Scripture. It's mentioned more than anything else. Anything else. And it's in that moment when we put something else first in our life that is not God, that is idolatry. Let me put it to you another way. An idol is a good thing we make an ultimate thing. It's not necessarily bad in and of itself. An idol is a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. An idolatry is making a good thing your ultimate aim. Making a good thing your ultimate aim. The question is, how do you kill your idols? How do you do that? You have to deny that idol the place of preeminence in your life. You have to deny it. And you deny it best by replacing the idol with a heavenly characteristic replacing the idol with a divine characteristic or a kingdom characteristic that reflects the nature of God. Take the three that we were looking at here in Matthew 19, relational freedom. If, if relational freedom is an idol in your life, you break the power of that idol by making and keeping commitments. Making and keeping commitments. See, a lot of people think making and keeping commitments is restrictive. It's actually not. It's actually freeing because you know what your focus is in life. And when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to every other possibility. But you know where your heart truly lies. You know where your commitments are. Think of the idol of privilege and status. Instead of seeking after building up your own status in life and the privilege that comes with it, you go out of your way to value and elevate and even brag on other people. Instead of making yourself the center of your universe, you, you brag on, you value, you elevate other people around you. You do the opposite. You operate in the opposite spirit that the idol is bringing you in. Instead of uh, this idea of security and comfort found in possessions and wealth and those kind of things, instead you operate in the op opposite spirit, the divine characteristic, and you give. You give more than you plan to give. You give more often than you normally would. You, that's how we break the power of idols in our life. And again, please hear me. Any good thing in life can become one. Any good thing in life can become one. The question is, what's yours? At the end of the day, that's the question. What is your idol? What is your idol? And are you willing to dethrone that idol from your life? This is one of those sermons that 
in one of the topics where I know it applies to every single person. And the question is, what's yours? What is yours? What drives you? What motivates you? What keeps you up at night? What is the thing that you say, I cannot live without that? If that, that is not God, it's an idol. The phrase that was coined several years ago is that you will either worship God and you will follow God or you will have a functional Savior, a Savior that helps you function through the day. As long as I have that, whatever that is, as long as I get to do that, whatever that is, then I'm okay. If that's not God, it's an idol. And you better remove it or it will control you. I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what your idol is. But I know that God, by the power of his spirit, helps us make sure we keep him in the place of supremacy in our life. And I want to pray to that end this morning. Amen. Father, I thank you that no matter, no matter what, has become a stronghold in our life. No matter what we've placed in that place of preeminence in our hearts, Lord, you can help us remove it. Lord, I believe for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, there can only be one God among the people of God. And forgive us for those moments when we have followed and bent our knee to another God to an idol we have constructed in our life. And Lord, would you help us this morning, no matter what's going on in our life, what we have placed at the center of our life, would you help us make sure that we seek first the kingdom of heaven. We seek you first above all other things. Lord, let it be so among us and within us. Let it be so. I pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody